Well, the last sermon that I gave was two weeks ago out at Grace, and I preached on really one word, crucified. We looked uh, at the brutality of the crucifixion of Jesus, and a key verse, it's, it's a key verse in understanding crucifixion, but a key verse in the heart of who Valleybrook is, is 1 Corinthians 2.2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In fact, I thought, okay, what should we do for our first Sunday? Should we talk about God filling the temple with His presence and uh, Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilding Jerusalem? And it just was super clear. The Lord said, keep preaching the cross. And uh, we, we started to look at John uh, and his portrayal of what happened at the cross. We talked about crucifixion, but I want to continue uh, to talk about the cross, to look at John's uh, gospel and uh, continue to study the cross. So, he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, over to them, the Roman soldiers, to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I'm king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So as we look at that paragraph, I want to look at three things, okay? First, the, the shame of the cross. Secondly, the thieves on the cross. And then thirdly, the sign that Pilate nailed on the cross over his head. So let's look at the shame of the cross. And this, I, I, maybe you've missed this before. I found this uh, incredible. But it says, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Now, a lot of times you see in the movies, the, Jesus is carrying the actual the crossbeam and the, the upright, and a, he's carrying a cross. Probably what happened, and this is what they did with most crucifixions, is on the hill there was the upright already installed, and they carried the crossbeam on their back, on their shoulders, probably tied with their arms out like this. Okay? Why? To shame them. It would be like a, a prisoner going to the electric chair 
and they say, oh, by the way, we're going to first have you carry that 150-pound electric chair in a parade down the city, and then we're going to publicly execute you. It's to shame them. The crossbeam weighed between 100 and 200 pounds. He's been beaten to within that much of his life. Crossbeam tied to his arms. And we know that he fell because Simon of Cyrene had to help him carry the crossbeam. Now think about this. If you're tied, if your arms are tied to a crossbeam, and it's 150 pounds, and you fall, what are you going to fall on? You're going to fall on your face. And you're going to be laughed at. You're going to be bloodied up. And you're going to struggle to get up. And you're going to fall again. So this bearing his own cross is done on purpose to shame the crucified person. Right? Then it says there they crucified him. And something that we don't talk about a lot is this. They stripped him of all his clothes, nailed him to the cross, and he's hanging naked. And in a few verses later, we're told the name of four women. One of them his own mother. You're in agony, and you're utterly shamed. Crucifixion was not only the most painful way to die, it was the most shameful way to die. Now, here's a question. Why did Jesus need to endure such shame? Here's why. His death on the cross was to take away, yes, our guilt. He's paying the price. To take away our punishment. He's in our place, and to take away our shame. Right? I think a lot of Christians understand the formula, Jesus died in our place, yes, I am no longer guilty before God, but they're still bearing their own shame for their sin. Right? Let's go back to the first sin on the planet, God puts Adam and Eve in a garden. You can eat whatever you want. Just don't eat from that tree. They do. And when they eat from the tree, it says this, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, this has to be more than just a mere reference to, Oh, suddenly we realize we don't have clothes on they realized the shame. Nakedness is equated with shame. So in their shame, they try to fix the problem by sewing together fig leaves. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
So, so they try to fix the shame themselves, right? And then what else do they do? And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So along with sin comes guilt, punishment, and shame, which is represented here by realizing they're naked. They try to fix it themselves with fig leaves. I don't think those are going to last very long. So what does God do? Look at this. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So God fixes their guilt and their punishment problem with the substitution of an animal. But notice the text goes out of its way to point out that he also fixed their shame problem. He didn't just sacrifice the animal and say, all right, you're, you're, you're no longer guilty, the penalty. No, he covered them. He covered their shame with clothes from the substitutionary animal. Right? Some of us in this room understand that Jesus has taken the, the, the guilt away and paid the penalty, but we're still bearing our own shame. Right? Some people consciously, you ever meet a Christian who just, you can tell they're, they understand the gospel, but they're weighed down with shame from the past. Other people, subconsciously. Right? How, how, do we, uh, how do we try to fix our own shame subconsciously? We, how, how do we sew together fig leaves? Usually, it's through accomplishment, performance, living for the approval of others. Sometimes the most impressive people are motivated by shame. They're trying to, to sow their own fig leaves so they're not ashamed. Have, have you ever asked, why am I so obsessed with being accepted by others? Right? Might it be fueled by shame? Jesus took our guilt, our penalty, and our shame. So let me, let me just uh, remind you of a few people that Jesus encounters. Um, the woman at the well. John chapter 4. Little, little thing you might have missed. Jesus is at the well, and a woman comes, and it says it's the sixth hour. Anybody know what the sixth hour is? It's noon. Worst time to go get, carry a, a load of water. Because it's the middle of the day. It's swelteringly hot. 
Why does she go at noon when nobody else would go? Because we find out, Jesus reveals, she's had five husbands, and the guy she's living with now is not her husband. So she had a reputation. She avoided people. She avoided the stairs of people to go get the water. She meets Jesus, and she, she starts to believe that this is the Messiah. And when she finds out, does she go back in shame? Look at what happens. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now She doesn't care. Now she's the, evangel- she's the town evangelist. Jesus took away her shame. The prodigal son returns home covered in pig filth, hanging his head in shame. The father runs across town to him, which was a a shameful act for for an older man to do. He hugs him, and he calls for him to be wrapped in the best robe. A robe of honor. And the father doesn't say, well, first go get cleaned up. He's forgiven right there and covered right there. Jesus is in a boat. They land in Gentile territory in a graveyard. And there's a man who's possessed by a legion of demons. Could be 2,000 demons. He breaks chains. He cuts himself with rocks. And he's naked. A naked, chain-breaking, rock-cutting guy howling at the moon. And Jesus casts out the demons. And here's what it says. And they, the townspeople, came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They thought Jesus was scarier than the chain-chewing naked guy in in the graveyard. And then he says, Jesus, I want to travel with you. And Jesus says, you stay here and be a witness here. But here's a guy who lived in shame, who now is dressed and in his right mind, and he wants to travel with Jesus. So here's my prayer that God would reveal to you if you're bearing your own shame. Can you give it to Him? Do you realize His going to the cross was not just paying your penalty, but taking your shame? Dwell on that when we have communion. Let me me briefly cover two more things. Um, The thieves. In John's Gospel, notice it it doesn't say much about him. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. So in John's Gospel, they're just called two others. That's it. Three of them were on a hill. That's all we know. In Mark's Gospel, Mark goes a little bit further and he calls them robbers. In Matthew's Gospel, he goes a little bit further and he says, 
both of these robbers reviled him. So everybody's mocking and jeering at Jesus, along with these two guys on either side. You've got to be pretty cruel when you're crucified yourself to take the time out to mock another guy who's being crucified. But then Luke tells us the amazing story that one of these robbers, thieves, in the middle of all this, turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, remember doesn't mean, hey, just occasionally think about me, would you? In Genesis 30.22, it says, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. When he remembers, he acts on behalf of. So the thief says, Jesus, act on my behalf when you enter your kingdom. Now, what's going on here? I, I always say, did, what did he know? He, did he have enough information to be saved? Well, I think he did. I think he believed that this guy, Jesus, had to be of a kingdom, but this kingdom had to be of another realm because he was about to die. Nobody survived crucifixion. So, he believes that Jesus is the king of, a, of, a, of another realm. He believes that in spite of his life of crime, this Jesus can somehow make him right with God. And he repents. He does a turnaround from disdaining Jesus to trusting in Jesus. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. I always say that Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's the doctrine. But the thief on the cross is the demonstration of the doctrine. And I, you know what? I think it's appropriate to bring up the doctrine of justification because 20 years ago, I don't know if any of you were even here, but I preached in this church. Were any of you here for that? You were there. I, they still had this, this, this wood here. And I think it was Reformation Sunday, and we were in a Lutheran church, so I talked about Martin Luther's story and his agony with, with struggling, have, have I done enough to be saved? And then he was studying Romans, and he read this, for in it, speaking of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And he hated the gospel. Because when he read the righteousness of God, he thought of the, the just holy righteousness of God that would condemn him to hell. But as he studied that verse along with the rest of Romans, he realized, wait a minute, 
the righteousness of God, yes, God is perfectly righteous, and He does judge sinners, but this righteousness of God that Paul's talking about is a gift of righteousness. So he saw that the righteousness of God is the, he called it the passive righteousness, with which merciful God justifies us by faith. In other words, the righteousness of God is revealed in those who place their faith in God. God gives them Christ's perfect record. He goes, the righteousness of God is a gift. And he loved it, and he wrote this, Here I felt that I was altogether born again, and had entered paradise itself through open gates. So right there, on the hill, as Jesus is being crucified, we see illustrated before our very eyes a criminal reviling Jesus and then believing in Jesus and then Jesus saying, you'll be with me today in paradise. The gospel is being lived out as Jesus is dying. All right? One last thing. The sign. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It, it read, Jesus of Nazareth. And by the way, putting Nazareth on the sign was also an insult because Nazareth was a little podunk town. All right, so, oh, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So no matter what your language was, you could identify the criminals and what they were being crucified for. He's being crucified for being king of the Jews. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but rather... This man said, I'm king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. So what, what Pilate was doing was twofold. One, he was saying, quit, quit telling me what to do. You've already backed me in a corner and I've crucified him. No, I'm not going to change the sign anymore. But secondly... I'm going to mock you, Jews. This is your king. This pathetic, weak, dying man. Yet yeah, that's your king. That's what I think of you. What Pilate meant as an insult was actually a proclamation of truth. This is the king of the Jews. Very similar to Caiaphas, the high priest, who, it says this, he, he says, do you not, uh, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish? So he's saying, we got to kill Jesus for the sake of the nation. He meant politically. He's stirring up trouble and crowds are gathering. We don't need this problem with Rome. Kill him for the sake of the nation. And John says he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Not politically, but for their sins. So here we have in John's Gospel two people intending to insult 
and kill Jesus, yet they speak truth. It is better that one man die for the nation. And he is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And one day, Pilate and Caiaphas and Judas and those soldiers and the disciples and everyone will bow before him. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, even those who mock you proclaim truth. Lord, we will all bow our knees before you because you truly are not just King of the Jews, but King of the universe, King of kings, Lord of lords, who willingly went to the cross Lord, you paid the penalty, you took away our guilt, and you took away our shame. Lord, I pray especially for those who are are carrying that burden of shame, that you would take it from them and that they would find relief. Free up souls, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.